Today I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them that they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the thoroughness of your word and your revelation towards us. Lord, you don't leave us blind. Um, you give us the revelation of your light, of truth. And you show us how we ought to live and walk, Lord, and you um, grant all wisdom to us, Lord. Uh, you love us, Lord, and you don't seek to deprive us or leave us in the dark. I pray that today as we uh, look at your words on marriage and singleness and how we ought to view those things in the pursuit of marriage and even in the goodness of singleness, Lord, um, that we would seek first... Uh, your kingdom, Lord, whatever it is we're doing uh, with these things. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, brother. We kind of changed one thing up this this morning, and that is that we invited our high schoolers to come and join us. Uh, and I'm very pleased to, to have you guys with us for this message. Uh, I think you'll you'll understand why, as we proceed through this passage, why we asked you to, to be with us. As soon as I say the word sex, I'm pretty sure I have everybody's undivided attention, right? At least for a minute. It, it doesn't take uh, any great powers of observation to recognize that, that many people are obsessed with the whole idea of sex and sexuality. And more than ever before, the casting aside of sexual constraints has become an obsession for the culture in which we live in 21st century America and in much of the world. The new first commandment for modern mankind is it's my body and nobody gets to tell me what to do with it. Anyone who even so much as questions that imperative is labeled not merely as closed-minded or stuck in the past, but as evil. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, God says that that assertion, it's my body and nobody gets to tell me what to do with it, is a bald-faced lie. It's worse than a lie. It's a clenched fist raised against Almighty God. Through the Apostle Paul last week, we saw God say to us, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 and following, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. It's not your body. God made it. God owns it. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God resides in it full time. If you belong to Christ, your body is His temple, His dwelling place, and it's also His chosen vessel for for displaying His character and His ways and for proclaiming His character and His ways on His earth. That's what your body is for. God has absolute authority to tell you and me absolutely everything about what we are to do with these physical bodies. And, and, and guys, He has told us. He has told us. He hasn't left us in the dark. In fact, He's told us everything that we need to know. In chapter 7, Paul now continues with his call to every believer. He's going right back to what he just said. God bought you for Himself, so glorify God in your body. He's carrying forward that thought. In the first two verses of chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The word touch as it's used here means to have sex with. That's very well documented, both from scriptural usage and from extra-biblical usage in that era. And the way Paul opens verse 1, now con- he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, that tells us that Paul is responding here to an issue that was, that was raised in a letter that the Corinthian Christians sent to him. He was in Ephesus at the time. And one of the questions that they raised in that letter was, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? Now please, please notice that the question is not, the question is not, is it bad for a man to have sex with a woman? The question is, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? And Paul's answer is, yes, it is good, but, He's saying, yes, abstaining from sex is good. But there are some things you need to know if you're going to get this right. Paul is most assuredly not saying that sex is bad. (laughs) At any point in human history before the advent of in vitro fertilization, of, of putting an egg and a sperm together in a test tube and, and and seeing a conception occur, uh, before that happened, which was in the late part of the 20, 20th century, the elimination of sexual intercourse between men and women would have brought about the extinction of mankind in one generation. Okay, That's never been anything like what God has in mind. In fact, God's clear command to Adam and Eve and to all mankind on the very first page of your Bible was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Paul is absolutely not saying that sex is bad. In fact, he's 
just about to tell us that there's one scenario in which it is sinful for a man not to have sex with a woman, and that is when the woman happens to be his wife. But first things first. Paul is not saying sex is bad, and if we keep reading, we discover what he is saying. He's saying that abstinence from sex is required in any and every relationship except marriage between a man and a woman. That means that sexual sexual abstinence for a time is required by God of everybody at some point. And it's required by God of a lot of people who are sitting in this room right now. Some young, some old, (laughs) some in between. Paul is also saying that the Christian who chooses not to marry and thus not to experience sex is choosing a good thing and not a bad thing. Now, if the first proposition is unpopular, that sex requires marriage, the second proposition is even less popular in these days. Any notion that life without sex could be a good choice is insanity to the world in which we now live. You've you've no doubt noticed that our culture equates a fulfilled life with a sexually active life. It says to us at every turn that until you start having sex, you're missing out on real life. So you need to get with the program. (laughs) The scandal of being a 40-year-old virgin less than 20 years ago is now being applied to 20-year-old virgins. Everything that Paul says here as God's appointed spokesman regarding human sexuality, has now been very decisively rejected by the mainstream culture in which you and I live. Not merely declared foolishness, not merely declared wrong, but declared morally wrong. When it comes to consensual sexual behavior, what was always believed, even by the mainstream of humanity, to be wrong is now declared to be right. And what was always believed to be right is now declared to be just plain evil. And at the root of of these first-time sea changes in the mainstream sexual expectations of our culture is the firm belief that any moral conviction that doesn't come from you has no authority over you. That you are accountable to your truth and only your truth. No other truth exists as far as the world is now concerned. And anything else that is declared to be truth must of moral necessity be rejected as closed-minded, intolerant, and evil. This is moral relativism finally brought to its logical conclusion in my lifetime. I knew everything was headed this way, but I didn't know it would get this far. In an excellent article by a guy named Peter Kraft called A Refutation of Moral Relativism, and, and if you want, if you want access to this, it's a really good read. In that article, The Refutation of Moral Relativism, Kraft makes a compelling case that moral relativism, the conviction that every individual gets to determine his or her own truth, actually 
became the dominant view of truth precisely in order to justify the casting, casting off of sexual constraints. In other words, man's relentless pursuit of absolute sexual freedom created moral relativism. And again, he makes a really good case. See, when, when having sex on your own terms matters more to a culture or to an individual than truth, the first casualty is truth. None of this should surprise us. Human beings cannot have sex on their own terms without casting off the Creator of sex and without casting off His ownership of our bodies. And every man or woman who casts off God, therefore, casts off the one relationship that transcends the mortal and mundane existence of human beings living under the curse. That transcendent relationship is intimate, personal union with Jesus Christ. It is the birthright of everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus. That union is realized both individually and together with all the people of God as Christ's bride, Christ's church. That's what the song was about a moment ago. The closest imitation or the closest approximation of that transcendent relationship on earth that men can lay hold of without God is unsurprisingly the God-given earthly picture of that very spiritual union. And that picture is sex. The joining together of a man and a woman as one flesh. When you rob that beautiful earthly picture both of its God-intended context, which is marriage, and of the eternal relationship between God and His image bearers to which that picture is designed to point, all you're left with, beloved, all you're left with is the divine gift of sex robbed of the divine. None of us has to be sexually active at any point in our lives in order to lay hold of that blessed, transcendent, eternal relationship that God designed sex and marriage to picture. See, we all, you and I who trust in Jesus, have all received the greater reality that the earthly reality merely pictures. But you cannot defile the picture without doing grievous damage to the relationship. And that's the very essence of what Paul is getting at here. In verse 2, he says, but, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. Later in verse 9 of the same passage, he rewords that point a little, and he says regarding unmarried believers and widowed believers, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now we'd have to be daft to miss Paul's uncompromising point. And that is that there is only one God-approved context for sexual activity. And that context is marriage. To be concise, sex requires marriage. And the only marriage that Paul acknowledges as marriage on behalf of God is that 
which involves one man and one woman. Each man is to have his own wife, singular. Each woman is to have her own husband, singular. Just like in the garden when God created sex. God, the creator of marriage, declared in the second chapter of His Word to mankind that because the first woman was created from the first man as the God-ordained helper suitable for man, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God's crystal clear design was not a man becoming one flesh with a man or a woman becoming one flesh with a woman. God dealt with those exact perversions of His design for sex and marriage with crystal clarity. In fact, even violent clarity in many passages of His Word, including Leviticus 18 and 20 and Romans chapter 1. It was because of the cultural embrace of those and other perversions, nearly all of which involved sex outside of His design, that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash. And that He later commissioned the nation of Israel to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan. Because these were the sins of the Canaanites. Now, we live in a culture that demands that we agree with those very violations of God's clearly revealed will are morally good. And that any assertion that they are not morally good is morally evil. That it deprives people of human flourishing and of their fundamental civil rights. God saw that coming, of course. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then listen to the last part. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. In other words, woe to those who listen to themselves instead of to God who made them. God says as clearly as words allow that He created marriage to be between a man and a woman. And He says as clearly as words allow that sex outside of that design is sin. Again, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, Paul says, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It would be easy to misread those words to mean that marriage is nothing more than an escape valve, a relief valve for people who can't control their sexual impulses. That the only reason to marry is to provide an acceptable outlet for those who lack sexual self-control so they can avoid offending God. But beloved, Paul certainly did not have such a dim view of marriage. That's not what he is asserting here. This is the same apostle who in Ephesians chapter 5 gave us the clearest presentation in the whole Bible for understanding that God designed earthly marriage to be a richly blessed representation or picture of the relationship between Christ and His 
church. This is the same apostle who in 1 Timothy chapter 4 told Timothy that those who forbid marriage are teaching doctrines of demons. And that marriage, like all else in God's creation, was intended by God to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. See, Paul had a wonderfully exalted view of marriage that derived from all that God had revealed about his design for marriage. But what Paul lays out for us without any ambiguity here is that the one and only God-ordained context for sex is marriage. So to Christian men and women, Paul says, in effect, if you can't live without sex or won't live without sex, you have to be married. If you can live without sex, he says that's good and commendable. Later, he'll explain that that way of life actually has many advantages, especially for Christians who want to serve Christ without any encumbrance, free to go wherever God takes them, free to do whatever God sets before them. And especially in times of great persecution against the church. We'll get to that later on, not in this message, but when we come to it later in this chapter. But if you can't or won't live without sex, you have only one option. And that is to marry a member of the opposite sex. And not just any member of the opposite sex, because a little later in chapter 7, Paul says a Christian needs to, must marry in the Lord. Must marry in the Lord. Next week, we'll look at what happens when you're married to, to an unbeliever. And, and in the first generation of Christians, that happened a whole lot. I mean, if you're married, if you got saved and you're already married, your spouse probably isn't a Christian yet, right? If you're part of the first generation of believers. So it happened a lot. All right. The first foundational truth that God sets before us here through Paul is that sex requires marriage and marriage is between a man and a woman. The second foundational truth that he sets before us is that marriage requires sex. He goes further than that. Marriage requires unselfish sex. Wow. To some people, that's an oxymoron. Unselfish sex. But that's what God requires. Verses 3-6 through of this passage make it clear that some of the believers at Corinth were treating sex within marriage as if it were at odds with true or at least ideal spirituality. In other words, some of the Corinthian saints believe that infrequent sex or even complete abstinence from sex within marriage would ensure more excellent devotion to spiritual pursuits. That badly misguided belief was undoubtedly a reflection of the dualistic view of man that permeated much of Greek thinking in that era. Dualism drew drew a sharp distinction between the physical realm and the soulish or spiritual realm of man's experience. It declared in effect that those two realms had very little to do with each other. And if you think about it, that explains a lot of what Paul was having to deal with here. One of the great distinctives of biblical Christianity is the simple understanding that God created us as spiritual, physical beings. And one of those realms has everything to do with the other. 
You can't get life in the physical realm right if you get life in the spiritual realm wrong. And you can't get life in the spiritual realm right if you get life in the physical realm wrong. God demands that both realms be set apart to Him at all times. Greek dualism manifested itself in the culture of first century Rome through two extremes that differed dramatically but had had their root very much in common. One of those extremes was hedonism or Epicureanism that said, if the physical realm is completely separate from the spiritual realm, you can do whatever you want to in the physical realm and it won't touch the spiritual. So you'll be okay spiritually. You can still be good even if you're bad over here. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. At the other extreme of this dualistic view of man was stoicism or asceticism. The view that you must strictly deny yourself any comfort or satisfaction in the physical realm in order to give proper priority to the spiritual realm because the physical doesn't, doesn't serve any real purpose. In the history of Christendom, there have been all kinds of versions of that second error. Some have treated sex and marriage as a necessary evil with only one pragmatic purpose, and that's to make babies. In other words, you have to do it, but you're not supposed to like it. Anyone who holds to that view would have a really, really hard time explaining the Song of Solomon and several other passages in Scripture. Now, some other Christians have treated sex and marriage as a good thing to be generally enjoyed by husbands and wives, but have insisted that choosing not to have sex within a marriage puts the husband and wife at a higher level of spirituality. Paul forcefully dispenses with any such notion in this passage. He makes it unambiguously clear that just as surely as sex requires marriage, marriage requires sex. Now, don't get me wrong, there are extraordinary circumstances in which it's impossible for a married couple to have sex. It could be a severe injury or a a disabling illness. I believe that God always, I, I know that God always gives grace to His children for whatever He sets before them. And in that kind of a scenario, I believe the form that that grace takes is very closely related to the spiritual gift that God granted to the Apostle Paul that equipped him to live his whole life without marriage or sex. But we must not miss Paul's point here, and his point is that marriage, God's design is that marriage requires sex. Listen to verses 3-5. through The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And by the way, if you're not married and you think you can clock out for this passage, you need to listen. Because we're going to see in a minute that, that holding the same view of marriage that God holds is an assignment given to every human being and absolutely to every Christian. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In the very next verse, verse 6, 
When Paul says, but I say this by way of concession, not of command, I believe he's referring to what he just said about sexual fasting in marriage. He's saying temporarily abstaining from sex might be a good thing for a married couple to do at times, but it is not required by God. It's like the free will offering in the Old Testament. It's voluntary. And it's good. But in this case, there are some conditions. Abstinence from sex within marriage must be practiced under four conditions. It must be by agreement. It must be for a time. It must be in order to devote yourselves to prayer. And you must come together again sexually. Sexual fasting in marriage has its place, but it has important conditions. And it's not required by God. What is required by God is that the husband and wife stop withholding sexual intimacy from one another. And beloved, there are some people in this room that need to hear this. I'm not saying I know who they are. I just, in a group this size, there are some people who need to hear this. This is a call to unselfish intimacy. We have a terrible tendency to translate the words stop depriving one another to stop depriving me. Those are two radically different propositions. Every single one, listen to this, every single one of the one another commands in the New Testament is about your assignment from God, not the other person's assignment from God. Here in one simple sentence, is one of the most transforming, liberating, and joy-producing biblical principles that you or I will ever know. You ready for it? You do your assignment from God and let God worry about the other person's assignment from God. Especially when that other person is your spouse. That would revolutionize many marriages right there. And I can tell you that in counseling hurting marriages, if you can get, if you see two Christians embrace that reality, I'll do my assignment and I'll leave my spouse's assignment from God to God. If you see both of them do that, the number of counseling sessions is very short and the result is dramatically good. And if you see that, that one or the other or both does not embrace that principle, you can go on for years with counseling, and nothing's going to happen. Because this is what God has called us to, beloved. You're not here to fix another person. And you're not married to fix your spouse. Your assignment is for you to humbly submit to God. And to rejoice in doing so. It's so cool because when one, in a hurting marriage, when one of the two spouses embraces this, even though they can't, they can't do anything about the other person because they're not supposed to try, but when one embraces this, their experience in that marriage gets a thousand percent better overnight. And they become a marvelously powerful vehicle for God to deal with that other person. That's what 1 Peter 3 is about. Go read it. This great passage puts many things right. Sex in marriage is a gift that you give to your spouse, not a service that you demand of your spouse. 
Let me say it again. Sex in marriage is a gift that you give to your spouse, not a service that you demand from your spouse. If you don't see how vastly different those two propositions are, you need to go and learn what this passage means. Every New Testament command and exhortation given to wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters, church members, and elders requires the person being addressed to do his own assignment from God, not to make the other person do theirs. A few key examples of such passages are Ephesians 5 and 6, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 2, 3, and 5. If your sexual interaction with your spouse is filled with demands instead of gifts of tender affection, stop with the demands. Stop with the demands. Nothing makes me crazy like hearing a man talk about what he needs his wife to do sexually. All you got to do, guy, is show up. Much more common in marriages in the modern church than sexual fasting for the purpose of prayer is the neglect or abandonment of sexual intimacy because of plain old alienation between husbands and wives. Far too many Christians share a household, a bank account, and one or more kids, but they share little or no genuine affection for each other. That is grievous in the sight of God, who in Proverbs 5 commands every husband to rejoice in the wife of his youth, to be exhilarated always with her love. There are quite a few passages like that. In some Christian marriages, sexual intimacy simply gets crowded out by the ridiculous level of busyness and frivolous activity that plagues our culture today. We find time to do a thousand things that accomplish little or nothing, including hours of interacting with other people in emails and texts and social media platforms and watching cat videos. But we place no great priority on intentionally setting all that stuff aside in order to nurture genuine intimacy with our spouses. See, it's supposed to be intentional, guys. Because it's important, guys and, and ladies. To my married brothers and sisters, I say this, and I, and I say it without any fear of misrepresenting God because he's been crystal clear about it. You and I must assign the same worth, the same value to sexual intimacy within our marriage as God assigns to it. God's intention for sex in your marriage and mine is that every husband and every wife will treat it as a sacred and unselfish gift that we are privileged to give to our beloved spouse. Often. Just like with giving, God doesn't tell us how often. But it's certainly not supposed to be something that rarely happens. Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That means, beloved, that if your answer when your spouse wants to enjoy sex with you is usually no, something is seriously amiss. And it needs you need to fix it. 
Listen for a moment to these beautiful words from Psalm 42. It's a familiar psalm to many. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A few verses later, it says, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Husband and wife, your spouse longs for your affection and intimacy as your soul longs for nearness to God. Both of those longings are sacred and precious in the sight of God. He created them both. God intends for you to delight in satisfying your spouse's longing for close relationship with you just as He delights in satisfying your longing, the longing of your soul for nearness to Him. Psalm 16, David said, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. The psalmist in Psalm 73 said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I have nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion, my inheritance forevermore. That is the longing of the, of the believer's soul for God. And God created that kind of longing in the heart of husbands for wives and wives for husbands. Because it's His picture of that relationship. Alright, the last point here in this passage is that doing without marriage and thus without sex is not a curse. It is a gift from God. It's in verse 1 and verses 7 and 8. At the very beginning of this message, I pointed out that Paul answered yes to the question, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? His answer was yes. He then made it clear that sex is reserved exclusively for marriage between a man and a woman. So for the unmarried, not only is it good not to have sex, it's demanded by God. Then he declared just as forcefully and just as clearly that there is one context in which it is not good for a man to abstain from sex with a woman, and that context is marriage. Sex requires marriage. And marriage requires sex. Finally, Paul comes back to the original question with an answer that many would not expect. He says in verse 7, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself. What does that mean? Well, Paul never married. And in keeping with everything that he just told us God requires, he remained celibate. He did not have sex. God gave him the self-control to abstain from sex. Not just for a while, guys, but for a lifetime. That unusual level of self-control sustained over an entire lifetime was a spiritual gift that Paul received from God. That's how he describes it. And he knew that most Christians don't possess that gift. So most Christians should and will marry. He goes on in the rest of verses 7 and 8 to say, However, each man has his own gift from God, 
one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain, even as I. I believe that God gives that gift in some cases to a person for life and in some cases to a person to equip them for a circumstance like being widowed or not being married yet. In every case, God gives you what you need to obey Him. Paul's going to have a whole lot more to say about singleness and celibacy later in this same chapter, and it's exceedingly important that we don't diminish in any way what he presents. So we'll hold off on saying any more about that very important topic until we get to the heart of what Paul has to say about it later in the chapter. But I want to point out one glaringly obvious truth that many Christians never even think about. And that is that the most fulfilled human being who ever walked this earth never had sex. The most fulfilled human being who ever walked this earth never had sex. His name was Jesus. His name is Jesus. The one man who is the perfect expression of God's eternal intention for mankind never had sex. Shouldn't that tell you something? The relationship of God the Son with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit was, is, and always will be perfect. The reality of blessed, transcendent, eternal relationship between God and man is realized, it is realized not through sexual union in marriage. That's the picture. It is realized through the miraculous spiritual union with Christ that God brings about one soul at a time by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you have not entered into that blessed relationship, I pray that today will be the day that you do. Take God at His Word. Trust Jesus as your God and Savior and be His forever. God has not been at all unclear about any of this. His Word speaks frequently, and I'm almost done here, His Word speaks frequently and forcefully about His intention for our sexuality. And beloved, none of us gets to sit on the sidelines when it comes to defending, guarding, proclaiming, and holding fast to what God has said. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled for the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge. That verse says that honoring God's will for the purity of the marriage bed is every Christian's assignment. Whether you're married or unmarried, God calls you to do that assignment. Young men, that means that the purity of the young women in your life is yours to guard and protect fiercely. Young women, that means that the purity of the young men in your life is yours to guard and to protect fiercely for God's sake and for the honor of Jesus Christ, the lover of your souls. If you and I, young and old, here in this little community of saints at Community Bible Chapel don't have the courage to stand unflinchingly on something so simple, so foundational, 
and so clearly revealed by God, then instead of shining the light of Christ brightly into this dead and condemned world, our lampstand will be set aside by Christ Himself and He will raise up others in our place to shine His light. But whatever you or I do, make no mistake about this, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So let's be on God's side, beloved. Fiercely on God's side. Loving Father, Your way is the way of blessing for Your people. Give us the humility and the, and the courage to accept no other way. We ask this in Jesus' incomparable name. Amen.